Train, eat, repeat. The knowledge and know-how you need to live well. Here's your host, Tyler Ferrand. Hello, everyone, and welcome back into Train, Eat, Repeat. Hope you guys are having a great week. We have a fantastic episode for you guys. If you listen to this episode and absolutely love it or have further questions, make sure you go on the iTunes podcast app and leave a five-star review and leave a review on this episode in particular or just the podcast in general. Make sure, too, to hit that subscribe button so you guys do not miss an episode as we have some great guests coming up, not only in this episode, but also in next week's episode as well. So, Andrea had the opportunity in this episode to sit down with Laura Adler. She is an environmental toxins expert, educator, and a certified holistic health coach. Mainly, she functions as a teacher for health coaches, nutritionists, and other holistic health practitioners in how to eliminate the number one thing holding their clients back from the results they are seeking. And it typically comes down to the unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. She trains practitioners to become experts in everyday toxic exposures so they can improve client outcomes. So Andrea had the opportunity to sit down with Laura, talk about the relationship of toxins to outcomes when it comes to health. This is a fantastic episode, a lot to take in here, a lot to learn, and we hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. We're super excited to have you here, and I think our listeners are going to get so much information from our discussion. But first off, I wanted you to um, tell me a little bit about why this is your passion and what made you want to get into this field. Um, yeah, so I, I, this is a topic that I, I am passionate about now, but knew nothing about, um, say maybe 15 years ago. Um, you know, I, I didn't seek out this topic of environmental health to as like, oh, when I grow up, I want to do that, right? Like (laughs) as a lot of us, especially those of us that are in the health space, we often kind of have a meandering path that leads us to where we are. And so for a lot of people in the health space, it's because they had a specific health challenge that they had to figure out on their own. And then they figured it out and then say, oh, I feel so passionate about helping other people. That's not how I didn't have any chemical exposure that turned me on to this. Um, You know, I started um, uh, in this realm of the conversation of of health and wellness um, as a health coach. Um, And this was after, you know, a whole other career that I had um, for, you know, eight, eight years and um, was always interested in nutrition and food. I was like the, you know, the I lived in New York City at the time. I was taking all these classes at like the Natural Gourmet Cooking School, like for fun. Yeah. Um, And was like the farmer's market person and would go to like visit farms upstate New York to like see what they're all about. And so that was, that was me. I really came at it from, um, like just being a food nerd. Um, at the time I was, um, vegan and not anymore. That's not super relevant, but um, (laughs) I was like to mention that. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, I, I was already immersed in the health space. I was like this voracious reader. I would read all these books about, you know, farming and nutrition and all that stuff. Um, and so I decided ultimately like, Oh, let me, let me see if I can do work that allows me to kind of flex that nerdy muscle, um, scratch that nerdy itch. Maybe like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if I could talk about food all day. That would be fun. And so I went um, back to school to get a certification in health coaching, um, you know, hung my shingle, so to speak, um, in doing that work and started seeing clients, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there as I figured out how one makes a business in that space work. (laughs) 
Um, and, you know, at the time, because I didn't really know very much about business and marketing and having a niche and, and, and having a specialty, um, I was like, well, I can kind of help anyone with anything about health, right? Which sure. was a little bit of an overstated <laughs> skill set at the time, I realize now. Um, but um, most people were coming to me for weight loss, right? Like not okay. serious, like hundreds of pounds weight loss, but like that 20 to five pounds to 20 pound window of like, I want to lose some weight. And so I was like, great, well, that's, that's pretty straightforward. I can, I can help you with that. We're going to talk about all the different things that you're doing in your life and your sleep and your physical activity and your nutrition and your stress levels. And we're going to work on that. Mm-hmm. And most of the clients that came to me for weight loss had success and they felt good. They slept better. They had more energy. They lost the weight that they wanted. Great. Awesome. Pat myself on the back. I'm doing right. a good job. Yeah. And then we had a couple of clients that like were really compliant. They did all the things um, and they didn't really have any success. Like nothing really happened for them. And, you know, I felt very responsible to figure this out, especially as like a new health coach. Like, well, geez, I'm not very good if I can't do this. Right. Figure this out. So I started digging into resistant weight loss. Um, and like, what are the other factors that I, that I might be missing that I have some space to dialogue about? Right. That's within scope for what I was doing at the time. And so um, and and that so that sort of discovery process of what am I missing is what cracked open the door to this whole field of environmental health, because I was learning that, you know, there's environmental exposures um, that are classified as obesogens that are chemicals that are directly um, and indirectly linked to alterations in our metabolism in ways that can lead to weight gain that can predispose us to gaining weight, um, you know, from our childhood. Um, And that was like mind blowing information because I'd already spent like 15 years reading all the books and going back to school and being immersed in that space, at least within like the wellness space. And I was like, okay, well, I've learned about nutrition and stress and, and fitness and nowhere had the conversation around toxins been present in any meaningful way. And so I saw this just like, well, you know, kind of blow my hair back moment where I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute this is all stuff that we're being exposed to every single day, in some instances, multiple times in a single day. Right. And if we're working with people for me at the mo- at that time as a health coach, if I'm working with people around health, whether it's their weight or their sleep or their hormones or whatever, it, it certainly seems like a bit of a disservice to not also address this other component. And so I just became obsessed and fascinated with that world of environmental health and started, you know, researching and and reading all of the the studies that I that I could. Um, you know, I was very lucky at the time I was living in New York City, which is where we have the Children's Environmental Health Center. Um, we have the New York Academy of Sciences uh, and a couple of other hospitals that were doing work in this space that we're regularly holding, you know, conferences, symposiums, uh, lectures to academics and to the public. And so I was just voraciously consuming all of these lectures. And um, I just decided like, this is, this feels way more important not to other people that are more passionate about food that are going to do a better job. Um, 
than I would on on that area. And this felt like a big glaring hole. And so I spent a couple years really immersing myself, making sure that I understood what the research was saying before uh-huh. I turned around and started um, sharing it with other people. And and that, you know, I, I started teaching. Um, in, initially, it was just my health coaching friends and colleagues because they were like watching what I was doing and researching. And they were like, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I feel like right. I probably should. Yes. And so that was in 2000, early 2012. Um, okay. And that's, and, you know, in, and in, in that time, you know, I just, my, this is a, this is a fast moving and highly um, dynamic field of research. So there's, I mean, even just before we jumped on, I was uh-huh. reading my Google scholar alert of the new papers that have come in. And, you know, when I set up that Google scholar year, alert years ago, I'd maybe get three or four papers once a week. And now I get six or between six and 10 papers almost daily on, you know, just, you know, one category of say endocrine disrupting chemicals. So like the research is just, there's just volumes and volumes of it, um, uh, which is, which is great. Um, And so, yeah, so I that's it. That's how I got here. I love it. I love it. That's great. Well, you mentioned so many things that I want to dive deep into today while we're sitting here talking, but one of those specifically, my partner and I were health coaches, very similar to what your background was as well, helping you know people lose weight, manage stress, better sleep, better eating, all those kind of things. And after I heard your presentation, it was like, oh my gosh, there's this huge gap in my education that I really want to find more information about, right? Um, But one topic I want to talk to you about specifically is environmental toxins and how they affect weight loss or how they, uh, on the objects, uh, opposite side, they encourage weight gain. So where do the environmental toxins attach in our body? Or you had mentioned that they're fat or fat soluble that they're sitting in our fat, so to speak. Um, so how does that affect our weight loss process? Well, so there's a, so there's a, I'll back up and talk about the weight gain component and then talk about the, the resistant weight loss, because that will make more sense to people. So, um, in terms of weight gain and the sort of this, this category of chemicals referred to as obesogens, which is sort of this, I think there's about um, 20 chemicals that have been identified um, as obesogens um, so far. There's, that's it, that I've seen other people say it's maybe around 50. Um, we're just constantly evolving. We're going <laughs> to. I'm sure that list will get much longer as we do more research sure. into a lot of these chemicals. Um, but there's a, a number of different mechanisms that can um, uh, lead to weight gain. Um, from exposure to these environmental chemicals. Um, Some of the more concerning ones are the ones that are happening when we're um, developing as a fetus. Mm -hmm. So those prenatal or those fetal fetal exposures, not prenatal, fetal exposures, um, they actually can change the programming um, uh, of our fat cells in ways that like make us more likely to struggle with weight mm-hmm. than somebody who maybe didn't have those exposures in utero. And so, you know, if we think about the, the, you know, Oh, my sister or cousin or friend or whatever, my aunt, she did this diet and she, or she can eat whatever she wants and she never mm-hmm. gains weight versus mm-hmm. somebody else who just like looks at a pieces sure. tweak and they're like, look at oh. a sandwich and I gained five pounds. Right. right. <laughs> and so like, that's not to say that like these environmental exposures 
completely dis- explain that phenomenon, but it, it can, it can explain part of like, why are some people more predisposed than others? And some of that can go back to the sort of early life programming in fetal development, which is why, um, the fetal exposures are the most uh, concerning. Those are the most vulnerable population and, and sure. most meaningful. So, yes. you know, we can set people up, unfortunately, on this um, sort of metabolic path from infancy mm-hmm. unintentionally right. that makes those individuals struggle with um, weight gain and weight loss their okay. whole lives. So, okay. and that can't be undone. Right. So those people are just likely ones that have to work harder than somebody else. Okay. Doesn't have that. So that's like, I think, and I don't want, I don't want people, uh, there are people that struggle with their weight consistently and I want them to understand that this is probably not your fault. Right. Like there is that component that's like outside of our control. Right. That just makes it, it's an unfair hand to get dealt, um, that that person is just going to have to work a little bit harder, right? So there's that component. Um, Then we have this um, component where we can um, be exposed to certain of these obesogenic chemicals that can actually um, sort of change the way that our fat cells um, uh, are uh, developing, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and growing. And so these, this is, uh, happens. One of the mechanisms is through the activation of something called the PPAR gamma receptor, which is sort of this uh-huh. master regulator of fat cell development. And what happens is, um, you know, if, if you have a, um, fat cell that's present in, you know, in, with this activation of PPAR gamma, that fat cell now gets, uh, um, it, it, it increases its capacity for fat storage. Okay. Now you have like, people say like, oh, you're only born with a finite number of fat cells. I don't believe that that statement is true. And I'll explain this in a second. (laughs) PPAR activation can explain that away. Um, But this is for the fat cells that you already have, right? PPAR gamma can make them physically capable of holding more fat. So that in and of itself can lead to some degree of weight gain. We also have um, uh, stem cells that when they are, um, uh, when they are present, um, with this PPAR gamma activation, um, it can actually change the instructions for what that cell will become. So stem cells are this regenerative sure. cells, you know, your body's always making new cells, new skin, new whatever. And so it, what this does is it changes the marching orders. So say, instead of being a bone cell or a liver cell or a skin cell, I want you to go be a fat cell. Sure. And so this increases the number of fat cells that we have. Right. Right. And so this is like, okay, well, that's weight gain that's happening on a cellular level that doesn't have anything to do with food intake or, you know, caloric intake or output. Sure. And so this is referred to as chemically induced weight gain. We see this a lot with with medications, right? Side that have a side effect of weight gain. We know this to be, this isn't like some, you know, hypothetical. We know that this is a well-established side effect of a lot of medications, including psychiatric drugs, um, uh, antidepressants, Mm -hmm. um, the blood pressure medications. Yeah, exactly. And so like this can happen. And so it can trigger that happening. That's actually had happened to me. I had sleeping trouble and got put on trazodone as a, as a sleeping, um, pill. And turns out like that 
has that side effect, which I didn't mm-hmm. realize until I was like, Hey, what's going on? Right. So, <laughs> right. so you know, that it's just, a, 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 we know that these things happen. So um, the third way or uh, one of the other ways that this happens is to your point that you had said earlier, these fat soluble chemicals. Yes. Um, and so what happens is, you know, chemicals are either fat soluble or water soluble. Water soluble ones are a lot easier for our body to get rid of. They get right. peed out, right? Right. Fat soluble ones are a little bit harder because um, it's the liver's job to kind of break those down. It's the bile's job to excrete them. If you don't have a good bile production, that process is going to be hindered. But right. also, um, you know, your your body um, recognizes fat as an incredibly valuable resource. It's just a, a, a evolutionary. Yes. You know, wants thing. to hang on to it. Yes. Yeah, wants to hang on to it. And so, um, what happens is, uh, when we're, you know, burning fat, so to speak, um, uh, uh, the toxins, your body can't tell the difference between, um, actual fat and a fat soluble toxin. Okay. And so the body fat can get burned and this will come back to the resistant yeah. weight loss thing. Um, uh, but you can't burn a chemical. It's not a, it's not a unit of energy, right? Like fat is a right. unit of energy, right? So you right. can burn that off, um, right. but you can't burn off the chemical. So the chemical gets reabsorbed right through this inter enterohepatic recirculation process. Okay. So, um, if you are exposed to a lot of fat soluble toxins, your body's like, I don't, I can't, I don't have a place to put these bad boys. I can't pee them out. Uh-huh. And so it's a defense mechanism to minimize those toxins circulating through your blood and moving through your different organ systems and tissues. The body says, well, let's just sequester those bad boys in our fat. Okay. Right? So our fat, our adipose tissue is actually a storage facility in essence for a lot of these fat soluble toxins. Um, this is why we see a large percentage of fat soluble toxins in breast milk because breast milk is one of our only fatty secretions, right? right? It's a high fat, especially in the beginning. And right. so unfortunately there's a lot of toxins that exit the body through that pathway. Um, and so what happens is our body will react to exposure to some of these fat soluble toxins by creating more storage space to put them. And that okay. means more fat, more fat to hold all those toxins. And that's where that resistant of weight well, loss it, comes it, from. It certainly can be right. So this okay. is where, you know, your body, you're, you're trying to lose weight and your body's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need this, right. we need right. this because I'm actually trying to keep you safe from these toxins that are otherwise going to be in your bloodstream and going into your other tissues. And so I'm trying to do you a solid, but it does backfire, right? Because then we have more adipose tissue, that adipose tissue becomes its own endocrine organ and starts Uh producing its own hormones that cause problems and imbalance. Um, But the real um, fascinating um, aspect of this conversation of um, adipose uh, tissue and 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 toxins being stored in our fat. Um, there was a, a research uh, study that hypothesized that when we're looking at correlations between chronic disease and weight, so heart disease, diabetes, things like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. 
this research paper said, look, what, what's happening is that we're having this deposition of toxins in our fat. So now we have more fat. Our exposure to toxins is basically constant. And mm-hmm. so we have a larger capacity for storage. So we're just going to keep storing more. So it becomes this vicious upward cycle. Sure. Of more fat, more toxins, more fat, more toxins, more fat, more toxins. And so what they hypothesized was they said, look, we wonder whether or not the correlation between fat, meaning overweight, and mm-hmm. chronic illness is not because of the fat, but of all those toxins that are stored in the fat. That that's actually like the the fat is the vehicle, and for the for the real underlying cause of the problem, which is toxicity. Sure. So you know that's a, a hypothesis. I think it's pretty right. interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the inverse of this is when we do try to lose weight or when we do lose weight, um, we're actually flooding the system with the toxins that were previously stored in that fat. So the best okay. example of this is um, there's a, a handful of studies that are um, have looked at um, gastric bypass or lap band mm-hmm. surgeries, yeah. right, where people have extreme caloric restriction because their stomach is smaller, whatever. Sure. And that leads to rapid weight loss. Right. Well, rapid weight loss is your, your liver's working real hard. Overtime. Yeah. Real hard. And so what happens during, during rapid weight loss is that as your body shifts its fat, you know, fit shifts, shifts to fat burning mm-hmm. because your caloric intake is so low. Right. That's the whole, that's part of the whole point of that surgery. Um, is great. You're burning off those fat stores, but in doing that, you're unlocking the doors to all of those toxins and those toxins flood the system. And it's a lot for your body to deal with. And so what happens is this is very common um, uh, 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 side effect or after effect of that lap band surgery is that people get sick. They feel yeah. like garbage. Sure, sure. Right. Their hair falls out. Their skin is sallow. They just, they, they have no energy and it's it's likely because their body is just so overburdened their liver is so taxed with trying to metabolize all of these toxins and so um that then creates this system where it's like okay well the liver's doing its best but there's likely a lot of of that enterohepatic recirculation where those toxins are going back in right and so I am always um, mindful of when people are talking about weight loss or weight Mm -hmm. loss protocols to make sure that there's always an inclusion of detox support in that conversation for this reason. So my hunch is that the reason why people start to feel like crap when they start a new um, fitness routine or diet routine or whatever it is that they're doing, right? that where weight loss is part of that is that's probably what's happening, right? Okay. Is that they're right. getting a bit of a toxic dump mm-hmm. from their fat and their body's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. And so to me, that's a sign to slow down. Okay. To slow it down and to amp up detox support so that we can minimize how many of those toxins are getting recirculated and how we in, instead you're doing our best to usher them out of the body so that they're not con- continue to be um, problematic. 
Okay. So if I am, if I'm an overweight and obese person and I start to lose weight and the toxins are coming back into my body, is it one, I'm probably going to get sick Two, Is there an emotional response is like the hormone response elevated as well? Is that t- is typically I don't know a side if anybody's actually looked at that? I don't, okay. I don't know if anybody's actually looked at that. I mean, I would imagine, I mean, I don't know about the emotional response, but certainly you're, um, depending on the nature of the toxin, Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it an endocrine disrupting chemical? Right. right. And if we're dumping a bunch of endocrine disrupting chemicals that happen to be fat soluble ones into the body mm-hmm. in a short amount of time, like, sure. Are we expecting mm-hmm. to see, I mean, this is where things like hair loss are coming in. Right. Right. So if somebody's experiencing hair loss, that's typically a hormonal thing. Like right. yes, certainly it can be, you know, I mean, there's some research into like the microbiome of the scalp and there's some, you know, when you have candida overgrowth on your scalp, that might. Sure. So like there's things like that, like these environmental chemical exposures don't explain all the things, right. They're explained right. parts of, but sure. this is one of those um, examples where, you know, if somebody's experiencing hair loss, it's probably because they're having a thyroid problem. Right. And there's many environmental chemicals that directly interfere with thyroid function and that suppress thyroid function. So, well, that makes sense. You know, is it, is that absolutely what's happening? I don't know, but it's a, it's a solid hypothesis. Understanding of, um, how, how these chemicals are released during um, rapid weight loss and then mm-hmm. how these chemicals affect us. But I don't know if anybody's studied like the lap band surgery population, sure. which is a, you know, it's a very um, specific intervention rather than like the diet and lifestyle mechanism of losing weight. There's too many variables, I think. Yeah. For that to do a clean sure. study. Um, but um, yeah, so that, that's okay. a bit of what's happening. So when I'm, when I'm pushing those toxins into my body, you talked about the detoxification support. What, what do you suggest that the client does or that the person does when they are noticing or that us as coaches are noticing this happening with our clients? Yeah. I mean, I think the number one thing, um, as I like to say, number one thing is actually the number two thing, or you can say that the other way around, which is poop, right? <laughs> That's our primary exit for right. toxins and waste out of the body is poop. That's it. And so if people are not pooping at, at least, a regular basis, at yeah. least one time a day, right? Like you're going to have a backup of toxins in the system, right? That's just how it is, right? Sure. And so sure. we need to like that's first and foremost. So, you know, I know that in the in the um wellness uh, practitioner space, we love talking about like the liver detox and like this supplement and that supplement and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, those have their place. However, you know, we have to think of there's, there's phases to the detox process and the liver is, you know, phase one and two and then sort of excretion or elimination is phase three. Mm-hmm. If we open the door to phase one and phase two, which happens in the liver, like, yeah, go supplement the liver, do all this liver support stuff, but haven't opened the third door. Where is all that going to go? And the third door is poop. So you actually have to optimize in the opposite direction. So before you push supplementation to support the liver that, or, or to, to, to pull toxins or anything like that, the focus is on pooping first. Sure. So first and foremost, poop, 
Um, hydration, right? Because our kidney is how we process water soluble. Flush everything. Sure. Yeah. So like these are pretty fundamental, right? right? So we all should be doing this, pooping and peeing every day, right. staying <laughs> hydrated. Like this is not rocket science. This doesn't require an investment in hundreds of dollars in supplements. Like this is this is our human physiology and we're normal function. Yeah. Yes. We just need to make sure that that's happening. And, and as I'm sure that you know, that doesn't happen for a lot of people, right? People. The mm-hmm. number of people that I've talked to or, you know, have shared that like, oh, I, I, you know, I, every three days I poop and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I don't even know what that would feel like. So <laughs> right. uncomfortable, right? right. So right. uncomfortable. Um, and so we want to make sure that that's, those doorways are prioritized. So sure. after we've ensured that those doorways are open, um, we can absolutely include, um, liver support. I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm not an advocate for like jumping to supplementation first. Mm -hmm. I think that we do that through food, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Cruciferous vegetables, the kales, the cauliflower, the broccoli. Yeah. The more Um, fiber. Eat those foods. It's not just for fiber to help the poop, right? We need that. Mm -hmm. It's got more than one job. Um, It's also because it's providing our liver with the nutrients that it needs to, for the liver to do its job. So our you know, our, our cruciferous, um, our sulfur rich, our onions, our garlics, our leeks, scallions, all of those things are great to help support natural detox. There's also herbs, you know, whether it's milk thistle or dandelion root that can like kind of help love up your liver, so to speak. Um, eating bitter foods, especially, you know, in the springtime, that's sort of if we want to ride that seasonal wave of foods, you know, the spring is when we get our dandelion green, our dandelions, mm-hmm. I got dandelions all over my backyard. And so we, you know, this is the time in that uh, for bitter foods. And so bitter mm-hmm. foods help with bile flow. So I mentioned earlier, we need bile flow to help eliminate um, some of those fat soluble toxins. And so we want to stimulate bile production and we do that, but that's part of our detox process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big advocate for doing things as simply and naturally and least in the least complicated manner as possible. Um, and, and, and really reinforcing that as a talking point in this conversation so that people don't have the false belief that health is only for people who can afford lots of supplements. Right. Because that's a problem. <laughs> right. 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 Problem. Exactly. Well, and um, it's a whole market itself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and there's lots of layers to yes. that whole issue. But, um, you know, we want to sort of democratize the process of um people being able to take care of their health and to optimize their health um, instead of hiding behind super expensive protocols. So we do the things simply. Um, We eat those nutrient dense foods and herbs that can help support the liver function or, um, uh, uh, you know, the nutrients that it needs to do its job. Um, We can also incorporate practices like sauna therapy Mm -hmm. um, and, People don't need to go out and buy the really expensive near infrared, far infrared. They can if they want to. That's great if they have the funds and resources to do that. But any sweating um, uh, and and any any kind of sauna sweating um, is going to be beneficial. There is um, so much research on sauna therapy and the overall benefits of, you know, lowering all cause mortality, right? 
all disease risk factors are lowered mm-hmm. for people who regularly sauna. Mm-hmm. Um, those are typically studies done out of Finland, Finland, because that's culturally, you know, in, in Scandinavian countries, that's like, that's just what they do is they sauna. Um, as a regular part of their lives, right? Like just, that's just what we do. Um, And so um, there are studies that have looked at um, uh, the toxins that can be excreted via sweat. Now, a lot of people think like, oh, you're just sweating out like potassium and like minerals, right? And sodium. Okay. Yes. And um, there is a, 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 I don't, we don't know how meaningful it is ultimately, but there is uh, the ability for our body to eliminate some types of toxins through sweating. And there's some research that shows that some toxins actually preferentially exit through sweat versus through urine or mm-hmm. some, some other um, sure. means. And so, you know, especially for the fat soluble toxins that might be in the like lipid barriers or lipid layers um, subcutaneous fat that sure those are going to exit through the skin um, because that's that's how we um, get those out so practicing regular sauna um, is a great way to um, you know support again this natural detoxification process um, and those are all you know pretty basic lifestyle recommendations sure um, you know, when people can get them. Uh, most of the Finnish studies are just done on a traditional sauna. They're not really look like, are there extra benefits to having an infrared, near infrared? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Great. There's some great research on that. Um, but it's not necessary in order to reap the benefit of, mm-hmm. um, uh, of all cause mortality being reduced. And then some of this uh, detox- detoxification work. Sure. Now, do you see in the research that you've done or some of the studies that you've read that the rise in obesity with the resistance of weight loss and let's say, um, how does environmental toxins play into the food that we eat or the skincare that we put on our, our skin or processed foods or household cleaners? How do you see that the correlation of those increasing? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, the correlation is incredibly strong. I mean, and correlation isn't causation, right? So pretty clear. And when we see patterns of correlation that are like consistent, um, in, in multiple areas, like that's valuable from a let's go investigate and see what's there standpoint, right? Like that's the process of science is, is mm-hmm. figuring, hey, I see something. Let me go check that out. See what's right. what. And so, you know, if we look at the the graph of, you know, when chemicals, you know, really started um, showing up in the marketplace and, and the increase of chemicals in commerce, and we overlay that with the graph of, you know, the number of people that have um, obesity or diabetes or heart disease or cancer or autism or whatever, sure. um, we see that those are very, very closely mirrored. They're almost identical graphs, right? And so, um, again, it's not causation, but it's like, oh, okay, these things happened in tandem. Now, and I don't, um, I'm see if I can remember this correctly. Um, Similar graphs that have looked at, say, sugar, which we Mm -hmm. demonize, I mean, sugar is not great for us for lots of different reasons, but people like to blame sugar on the obesity uh, trends right. and rates. And if we actually look at 
the graph of sugar and the volume of consumption of sugar, it does not match up to the graph of uh, disease, uh, obesity. Okay. It doesn't match. And so it's like, okay, well, that actually doesn't show correlation. That doesn't mean that there's still not some degree of causation, but it doesn't show a strong correlation in the same way that chemicals, introduction of chemicals in the marketplace to obesity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and look, the term obesogens was coined in 2006. Mm -hmm. Um, Research into this topic had started before that, but this is still a rel in the grand scheme of things. This is still a, a baby in terms of uh, research. So research scientists are still kind of trying to parse out the mechanisms of like, we see this happening. We don't exactly know all of the ways we think these are some of the ways this is one of the ways. Um, but that process is still unfolding. Um, but there's enough, um, data and there's enough research out there to say, okay, well, this, these very clearly seem to be a problem. We're still understanding exactly how, but it doesn't matter because there's still a problem. Right. Right. Now let's say, um, are we, there's been a lot out there lately about how polluted the oceans are and how the microplastics are filling into the ocean. The fish are eating the microplastic we're then ingesting the fish. How is that affecting us on that that toxin level um, of what we're eating and putting in our bodies as as an exposure? Well, I mean, our food, not specifically microplastics coming from seafood, although that is a component. We don't know to what degree that is meaningful yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the same way that we don't know how you know how is it affecting the fish, right? right. Is it affecting right. fish reproduction? Probably. Mm-hmm. We don't know that yet. Um, you know, we have to recognize and remember that, you know, just because something is in us doesn't automatically mean that it's bad. Right. Okay. So that's just, you know, we don't want to tar everything with the same brush. Um, so just the presence of a chemical in your bloodstream isn't necessarily a warning sign. Oh my God, something bad. Um, because not all chemicals are bad. That's just And the field specific, specifically the field of environmental health is looking at the chemicals that are known to be or suspected to be bad actors, right? And so we're not looking at all chemicals. Also, everything is a chemical. It's worth saying, right? Water is a chemical. Hormones are a chemical. So we're not talking about all chemicals. We're talking about the baddies. And so, um, you know, as it specifically to your question or, or, or reference to like microplastics and seafood, um, are we going to find out that that's a problem for human health? Probably. Probably. Right. Like right. we don't it's have enough information on that yet, but like sure. it's a pretty solid assumption that it's not right. great for them. <laughs> it's not great for us. Right. Sure. Um, sure. But more broadly speaking, our food is a major primary pathway for exposure to um toxins, toxicants. Um, you know, it's basically ingestion. We're eating it, we're inhaling Mm it, we're Mm -hmm. absorbing it, or it's being injected, right. Which is Mm -hmm. the least common. So, you know, ingestion, absorption, inhalation are the three roots of entry into the body. Mm -hmm. Ingestion is, you know, we're doing that every single day, multiple times Mm -hmm. throughout the day, whether it's, um, uh, chemicals, contaminants in our drinking water, which is incredibly common, um, or if it's pesticides on our conventionally grown foods, um, conventionally grown foods are the prim- primary exposure source to these pesticides. Obviously, if people are using pesticides in their home in the form of, you know, um, you know, uh, pest control for ants or roaches or whatever, um, 
or pesticides in their garden, you know, sure. whatever, then that Fertilizers. another exposure. Um, but our food is our primary exposure and it certainly is for, for children. Um, but then we also have, you know, we have heavy metals that are coming into our food um, at, you know, with uh, seafood, we have mercury contamination um, in certain types of seafoods. Um, we have PCBs and dioxins. We also have pesticides in our seafood, depending on whether or not it's farm raised or wild caught or imported or not imported. Um, and so those are a vehicle for toxicity into the food. We also have, um, you know, uh, um, uh, preservatives, which I'm less, less of my area of, of research mm-hmm. and more interested in things that aren't on the ingredient list, um, are there, but not listed. Right. Right. Um, uh, and, and, um, you know, we also have, um, uh, there was one other thing that I wanted to add to that list. Oh, um, uh, food contact, uh, chemicals. So things like BPA in our canned foods or PFAS chemicals in our, our paperboard food packaging, um, that or phthalates in our, in our food that are migrating into the food that we're eating through their packaging or production, um, uh, materials that they're coming in contact with during production. And so that becomes a, another source of exposure. So our food is, is, is huge, right? Like it's huge. Right. On all fronts. And it's, you know, like, look, it can be overwhelming to be like, oh, I have to change all the food. uh, No, but we have to, um, I think it's important that if we want to start addressing these exposures, that food is, it's not, it's not even necessarily the first thing that I tell people to do because it can feel overwhelming, but it is one of the most important um, uh, exposure sources because we're doing it all day, every day. Sure. Sure. Now with these environmental toxins, we're going to kind of change gears and we're going to come back to food in a little bit, but with these environmental toxins, um, a lot of uh, a population have noticed um, a slight, or not a slight, but a, a huge increase in infertility in women. Um, how is that? Uh, is that where it's the toxins that we're exposed to? It's just sitting in our systems or how is that affecting us? Um, so, there's a lot of research into um, fertility issues, not just in women, but also in men, mm-hmm. um, declining sperm counts mm-hmm. um, and then other issues with motility uh, of sperm, things like that. So other um, health markers of sperm um, are directly affected by a lot of environmental chemicals, as is um, female reproduction. So it's kind of um, on both sides of the male and female mm-hmm. um, journey where there can be problems um, uh, due to environmental chemical exposures. Um, but there is a quite a substantial body of research um, on everything from cigarette smoking and how cigarette smoking can directly cause um, and lead to changes in in hormones or other physiological, um, uh, you know, d- reproductive uh, uh, mechanisms that can you know, lead to subfertility, infertility, um, mi- increased miscarriage rates, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great new book um, that was just published recently called um, Countdown by Dr. Shauna Swan, who's an epidemiologist who's been studying um, environmental chemicals and reproductive health for 20 years or so. Um, I've been following her work for the last 10 years, and she just published this great book. And it is about declining fertility rates around the world. And, okay. you know, she, she, 
she shares in that um, book that, you know, we, we, uh, she's focusing, she's focusing both on, you know, sperm health and um, female reproductive health. But, you know, the way that she says it is, you know, men are half of what their grand grandfathers were in terms of sperm health. Mm -hmm. um, And that that's problematic um, for pretty obvious reasons. Right. Right. Um, right. And so, I, I mean, there's a huge impact. So anybody that's on a fertility journey, um, would be wise to spend time really assessing what are the exposures that they're getting and working towards um, systematically minimizing and reducing those exposures as much as possible. And then um, I, I don't re- recommend doing any kind of provoked detox. So provoked detox is where you're doing things, taking supplements that are intended to pull toxins out of the body to do that before like at least six months prior to conception, not while you're trying to conceive. Sure. Sure. Because that's all going to pass through the body. Right. Exactly. And so now you're just at, you're just pulling stuff out of the body at the same time that your body's pulling materials to build another human being or try to build another human being. So we want to separate that, that preconception detox from conception as far apart as possible. Um, And so Um, and, and in, in talking to, um, other health professionals that do work in the fertility space, you know, it is one of the, for the ones that know, right. About environmental chemical exposures. Mm -hmm. Um, it it is very much a non-negotiable in the conversation around like getting your body ready for a healthy pregnancy or Mm -hmm. a, you know, let's get you ready for IVF, Mm -hmm. not just about giving you injections of whatever, you know, medicine or drug that you need in order to boost your egg production production. Mm -hmm. It's about taking a couple steps back from that and saying, let's get my body as ready as possible. And I'm going to, that means really cleaning up um, your daily habits um, to minimize those exposures. And then ideally working with somebody who knows how to do to test for, and then um, if necessary, do some kind of provoked detox to help you. Um, and I don't encourage people to do provoked detox- detoxification protocols on their own um, because it can be dangerous, right? Yeah. Like, and you, you can get very sick. Yeah. Yes. Like if you don't know said. what you're doing, it can sure. be dangerous. I had a student of mine years ago tell me that she had, um, she had some heavy metal issues, I think, and she went to see you know, her, whatever doctor she was working with, and they were doing a, a chelation therapy. Um, and I don't know how common this is. I think it's not that common, but she actually went into cardiac arrest on the table. Oh and it turns out that, I mean, she's fine. She loves to tell the tale. Um, but, um, you know, it turned out that she didn't realize that she had all these like, underlying health issues. Her body was not ready to, to let- do something like that, right? You wouldn't go run a marathon or do an Ironman when you've just been like sitting on the couch. Like, goodbye, not ready for that. (laughs) Bye, not ready for that. You got trained for that, right? And so in the same way that, you know, you you really have to prep your body to do a provoked detox. And ideally, if you're working with a doctor who's doing that, they're working with you to do that. Sure, sure. Now on the opposite side of fertility, and then as women age and we start to do the perimenopausal and the menopausal, are you seeing that these toxins are um, increasing the impact and the severity of the um, issues that women go through during this process? 
Um, I, I haven't looked at that. I haven't looked at research specifically on the menopausal audience beyond, um, for example, um, blood lead levels increasing. So when women are experiencing bone loss, um, which is a typical part of aging, but often happens, starts really kind of kicking up during menopause, um, lead as well as, um, fluoride, um, are sequestered in bone. And so when you're experiencing bone loss, um, there's often an increase of lead of, it's the same concept, right? Is that fat burning and we're releasing it. So if we're, we're, we're dissolving, so to speak, our, Mm. our bone mass, then, um, we are releasing the lead that was previously trapped in that bone. And so, um, you know, I wonder if, again, some of the health issues that people experience, whether it's brain fog, Mm -hmm. right? Insomnia. These Mm -hmm. also can be symptoms of heavy metal exposures. Okay. And so, um, and certainly not all heavy metals store in bone, but lead does. Mm -hmm. And so I know that, um, specifically seems to be an issue with that menopausal, um, uh, window is that there's mm-hmm. an increase in blood lead levels. So that's sort of like a self intoxication mm-hmm. or toxification, right? Because it's not coming right. from the outside. It's actually coming from us. Um, and it's a representative of, you know, our previous lifetime of exposure where we've accumulated sure. all of this lead. Um, sure. So I know that that's, um, that is, there's documentation and lots of research around that. Um, I don't know if there is um, research I haven't looked, so there very well might be. Um, around um, what's happening otherwise during hormonal periods and how the presence of these endocrine disrupting chemicals can change that outcome or change the experience of somebody going through menopause. You know, a logic would tell me that, sure, there's very likely to be some kind of connection, whether that's a positive or net positive or net negative. I don't know. Um, But I'm sure that there is um, at least some... um, data that shows that it's, there's something happening there. Sure. Sure. Now, do you, you touched on this a little bit ago about the graph with the, the increase in chemical and the increase in obesity and how they correlate with each other. Do you feel that the increase in environmental toxins does, I guess, um, the bigger corporations, do you feel that their financial gain is outweighs what the impact is doing to ourselves? Like why, why are these yeah, they're greedy? They're just greedy. They're just greedy. So, and I think it's also, um, I don't know any point in history in which corporations and industry put people over profits. Right. That's just not how the model works. That's not how capitalism right. works. Right. Right. And so, especially when you're, oh, you're a publicly traded company, you're legally required to continue to grow your business and, and, like, and so it becomes at what cost? At the cost of us. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, it, it very much is, uh, and we see this historically, we can see this currently, like it just hasn't changed. It's mm-hmm. just there's rampant greed on the corporate sector. And so, you know, when we're looking, and this is an interesting um sort of nugget to chew on when we're looking at research studies is that industry studied, industry funded studies, first of all, I think, I don't remember what the 
figure the stat was on this. I think it was something like industry funded studies, something like 90% of the time they're like, it's fine. And they find a positive outcome, right? Of course they do. Independent studies are like, yeah, it's the opposite. We find problems 90% of the times, not the the other way. And what I think is industry interesting is, um, Industry-funded studies are generally looking to find and to prove safety, right? That's what they're after, right? It's safe. We want to prove that it's safe. Whereas um, government-funded studies or, you know, independently-funded studies are not looking to prove something is safe. They're investigating the mechanisms. They're Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what is happening and why, which Mm -hmm. is a different question to ask Mm -hmm. than is this safe? Right. And studies that don't find in corporations' favor don't get published. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So they don't, they don't bother publishing the studies that are like, mm, that one was, that showed right. that a chemical caused much cancer. Don't publish that one. Put that on the <laughs> right. burn pile. Right. 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 So I think that that tells us a lot about the motivations of. Sure industry. And we have countless cases where industry has worked really, really hard and spent millions and millions of dollars to Mm -hmm. suppress information about the harm that their product has caused, whether it's um, DuPont with the suppression of research around PFAS chemicals that they knew decades before it came to light more publicly. Um, And if people want to learn about that, they can go watch uh, the documentary, The Devil We Know, or you can watch Dark Water which is the sort of theatrical um, mm-hmm. story of, of the case of the lawyer, um, Robert Ballot, who spent 20 plus years doggedly suing um, DuPont for this PFAS contamination. So fascinating, enraging, aggravating story. But it's like whether it's them or whether it's Johnson & Johnson suppressing decades of research that their talcum powder has asbestos in it. Right. So like we see this over and over and over again. um, And it's just a a representative of of companies putting profits over people. We also see just to, you know, nod back to the Johnson and Johnson um, that there's there's always layers to this topic. Right. This there's this is probably one of the most um, multidimensional topics that covers all facets of of life. And within the realm of um, environmental health, we also have the topic of environmental justice and environmental racism, where we have uh, black and brown people, um, um, uh, marginalized, um, low-income communities that are disproportionately exposed. You know, 85% of um, uh, toxic waste dumps are situated in black and brown neighborhoods, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this kind of structural racism that leads to these things. And then we have companies like Johnson & Johnson who are like, "Mm, our white market of consumers are no longer buying our talcum powder anymore. So we're going to heavily market to the black community um, and pressure them to like smell good for church, mm-hmm. which is highly racist. And sure. so we also see that kind of behavior from these corporations. So, you know, we are, I don't know if that dynamic is going to change. I think one of the things that can be really helpful is talking less about industries, I mean, industry needs to be regulated for sure um, and better regulated and not self-regulated, which is what they ask for. Like, just we'll, we'll, we'll do it. It's like, okay, box guarding the house. Why would I trust you? (laughs) Track record. Right. Why would I trust you? Um, But there, um, so there was a great, 
and this is two research studies, I think this was from 2016, that said, okay, we're going to try to, this is a, a we're going to try to quantify the cost in dollars, right? Let's, let's tr- translate the cost of endocrine disrupting chemicals on the U.S. population um, in dollars so that maybe we can get the attention of people in government, right, to understand mm-hmm. the scale of how much this how, how much this matters. So what the researchers did is they said, okay, we're going to take a small percentage. It's like 5% of the known endocrine disrupting chemicals. And at this point, that's like over a thousand chemicals. Right. Um, and they said, we're going to take a really small amount of these endo- known endocrine disrupting chemicals and the ones that have the most robust research. So BPA, phthalates, PCBs, things like that. Um, Tons of data on these chemicals. And they said, okay, well, we're also going to look at like the, I think it was maybe five or seven chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, um, IQ points, not a disease, but it's a measure. It's a Mm -hmm. very flawed measure, but it's a measure of intelligence. And I'm putting Mm -hmm. that in air quotes because... Another rabbit hole people can go down is to research the history of IQ um, and how it is an inherently racist model of measuring intelligence. Um, It doesn't measure intelligence. It measures like um, affluence and Mm -hmm. what schools you went to um, Mm -hmm. measures a very Western view of intelligence, uh, a white Western view of intelligence. Anyway, so they said, okay, we're going to look at this small percentage of endocrine disruptors and say, okay, what do we know about their contribution to these chronic illnesses? Right. Cause maybe it's not, it's not all, it's not the entirety. Right. So we can't say, oh, diabetes is a hundred percent attributed to environmental chemicals. It's not, it's attributed to genetics and nutrition and there's lots of other things going on. Mm -hmm. And so say, okay, what's the percentage that we can like roughly estimate? And then what does that translate into dollars? And what they found was that um, this small slice of endocrine disrupting chemicals compared to a small slice of chronic disease costs the United States $341 billion each year in healthcare costs and lost wages due to um, lower IQ and sickness and, and all that stuff. $341 billion every year. And that is a tiny fraction of this bigger picture. So it is sure. likely within the trillions of dollars. Sure. And, you know, right now our um, medical system, which is incredibly flawed and broken in this country, right? It puts the onus on the individual to pay to shoulder those costs, not the government. Right. So I mentioned that there were two studies, same study authors said, okay, we're going to do the same analysis in the EU where they are not perfect, but they regulate chemicals more strictly than we do here in the United States, or at least for most types of chemicals. Um, And we're going to do that same calculation. And I don't remember, I think it was something like 135 billion. So it was like a third of the cost because, or the third of the burden, because they chose, they choose to regulate chemicals more proactively than we do here. So the burden is less. The reason why they choose, this is my hypothesis, the reason why they choose to regulate the chemicals more strictly there is because, for the most part, the EU countries have national health care. So mm. who's paying the bill? The right. government's paying the bill. So it, it, right. it, is, it benefits them to regulate Sure. But we don't have a national health care system. And so the federal government's like, well, it's not our it's not my yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah, it's not my problem. I'm going to pass the buck on to the individual. Right. Which is just 
insane. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a bad dynamic. And I think that we, you know, we need to have better oversight, um, in these industries. We need more funding for the agencies that, uh, more funding and then re- rewrite the laws in such a way that those agencies actually have the teeth that they need, right? Like so uh-huh. that the, um, the the EPA can actually go after people or that demands sure. that companies produce um, safety data. Um, and and currently we just don't we just don't have good policy to to actually protect us. Right. Right. So in listening to this program, our listeners are probably going to be the one glaring question is what can I do or better yet, what am I exposed to every day that I don't know about and what can I do to limit my exposure? Yeah. And I think the second question is actually more meaningful than the first because, um, you know, uh, we're all exposed to a large volume of chemicals and I think Mm -hmm. it can be, um, overwhelming and anxiety producing to feel like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, I better go research every single chemical. Um, If you want to do that, great. Come over to my little nerd community because that's what we do. But if people are just like, what do I do? Then the goal is we just want to identify where are we being exposed and what can I do to minimize that exposure? And so, you know, there's some basic fundamentals I'd like starting with giving people um, uh, recommendations or suggestions that are, um, free and easy, right. To Mm -hmm. remove the barrier of this is hard and this is expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think very commonly in the conversation about health optimization and especially this like low tox living world, it tends to be very, um, affluent and white centered. And what that does is it, it, it creates this exclusionary, vibe. And this is for everyone. And um, the people that are being excluded from this dialogue are the ones that need this information the most because they are disproportionately exposed and have less access to healthcare and good food and all that stuff. So I like to start with free and easy level it for everybody. These are things that everybody can do. So the first thing um, is stop buying scented candles, air fresheners, plugins, reed diffusers, all of those home fragrance items. Um, I get it. They're comforting. We love them. They create an ambiance um, and you are consistently polluting the air inside your home with endocrine disrupting chemicals like phthalates, um, they are doing nobody any favors. And so the best way, even if you have a scented candle and it's not being burned, it's still releasing volatile organic compounds and phthalates into the air in your home. So just don't buy those anymore and get rid of the ones that you have. That's actually a money-saving Uh, recommendation. Um, Two is open your windows for the same reason, right? We have a lot of materials that we bring into our home, whether it's a scented candle, which we can easily do something about, or it's the paint on our walls or the carpeting or our furniture, which are much harder to deal with. Um, And so we want to open our windows to allow for um, uh, better air exchange, right? So that we don't have all this um, toxic air that's just kind of stuck. We close our windows because we're trying to save money on heating costs and cooling costs, but there's a trade-off there. So we don't have to leave the windows open all day. Um, You know, I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's rainy and cold here in the winter. 
I at least once a day am going to open the windows. Um, a good sort of habit is just open all the windows and then just do a loop in your space and then just go close them all. Right. So sure. if, if it's cold out or rainy or whatever, um, but daily opening the windows is good. Taking your shoes off at the door minimizes tracking in pesticides, heavy metals, other chemicals from, you know, the park, the playground, the sidewalk, mm-hmm. et cetera. It's not about, yes, it helps to not track in like dog poop that we might've stepped in. <laughs> right. That's like the least of the concern. Right. Um, so those things uh, fall into that free and easy realm. Um, I would also add in there um, wet dusting. So wet dusting is, you know, use a microfiber cloth or a damp cloth or rag to dust your home when you're cleaning as opposed to a feather duster. Um, We think of dust as just being like annoying and messy, but it is, um, it's, it's, and it's not just like dead skin cells and pet hair. Like, yes, it's that, but it's also chemicals. Um, phthalates, heavy metals, pesticides, flame retardants, um, nonstick chemicals from stain resistant treatments on our carpets and couches and whatever. Um, And, you know, if we have small children or babies, where do they go? They go on the floor Mm -hmm. and they're crawling around and they're putting their hands in their mouth. Exactly. And so, you know, there have been body burden studies. Um, You know, these are individual, small, uh, you know, a single family. So not a large study with lots of people, but um, where they've measured the you know bur- body burden of chemicals um, in all the family members, and the, it's the babies that actually have the highest levels mm. um, compared to their parents, which are a lot of sure. people are like, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Unless you but they're they're in it that they're in it a lot more, yeah. and they have more skin, they um, breathe more air, they drink more water than a pound for pound for pound than adults do. Sure. Um, and, um, they don't have the, uh, detoxification capacities as a a fully grown adult. So that's why they have that higher body burden. So wet dusting is a means of, you know, you capture the dust and then you launder the cloth, or if it's a microfiber cloth, you can throw it away. Um, whatever. Oopsies. It's windy. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, Big gusts of wind or not. <laughs> I think you cut us both off guard. No, it's just that. Um, uh, so that's, you know, a, a basic fundamental place to start. Um, I think from there, you know, we're starting to look at things that um, can, from an avoidance standpoint, can start requiring us a little bit of an investment. So, you know, for example, swapping out your household cleaners. Um, I think that's also can be done very cheaply. So if people wanted to use vinegar and baking soda, um, great. If they don't want to do that, there are plenty of like non-tox, low-tox household cleaners that are just as good in terms of performance. Um, But those are another source of exposure. Um, But that's a regularly, relatively, I should say, easier one to change than say your personal care products. Mm -hmm. Right. So cleaning Mm -hmm. your household cleaners a little easier than swapping out your makeup and your lotions. And people are very attached to those. So those tend to be the last things they give up. Um, And they're also can can be a little bit more pricey to do that. Um, Certainly, you know, if people can afford it, switching to organically grown foods as much as possible um, rather than conventionally grown foods, a great way to minimize pesticide exposure, minimizing canned foods. Canned foods are a staple, but they're also a primary exposure source to bisphenols, so BPA, BBS, BPF. And so, you know, 
you can go with frozen, you can go with dried, um, you know, for something like beans, they're cheaper. You can probably get organic dried beans for the same amount that you would get in a can. Um, it makes more, it's healthier, right? They last longer, whatever. They probably last the same. Um, right. Uh, so cleaning up your food in that regard, um, you know, for people that have more resources to, to, and want to kind of dig into this, um, then you can go further and say, okay, I'm going to clean up my meat and my dairy and my seafood. I'm going to do organic pastured, wild caught, low on the food chain seafood so that I can minimize some of those mercury, um, PCB dioxin, um, persistent bioaccumulative toxins that are found in those foods. Um, I mean, and I mean, we can keep going, you know, furniture, carpeting, like it's, a, sure. but starting small um, and knowing that like, this is a process that takes time and not that, you know, it's, it's, it's what we do every day that matters, not what we do every once in a while. So, um, you know, I don't want people to feel like they're, you know, afraid of plastics or afraid of, you know, eating something non-organic. Sure. That's not the goal. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I had to travel, was traveling somewhere and I, um, I was bringing an empty stainless steel water bottle, but the airport didn't have a water fountain. It was some small airport. They didn't have a water, like a filtered water fountain for me to um, fill my bottle. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get dehydrated flying because that just makes me feel like trash. So I just bought a big giant plastic water bottle. And I was like, I'm not going to worry about this at all. Right. If I did this every day, Right. That would be probably not a good idea, but I drink out of a plastic water bottle every once in a while. So I share that because this, as people step into this conversation, it could be so easy to get overwhelmed and anxious about, Oh my God, this is terrifying. (laughs) Oh my God. And I don't want people to have that reaction. So it's like, take a breath, take a beat, do one thing, make that thing part of just your new normal. And then you mm-hmm. move on to do the next thing. So if you dish the scented candles and maybe you clean up your um, household cleaners and you move to like a baking soda and a lemon juice and vinegar or whatever, that whole, I mean, you just Google natural household cleaners on the internet. There's mm-hmm. plenty of them. I have some listed on my website. They're not the free ones, but you know, they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like that, that's easy. That can be done relatively quickly. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, for the bigger things, if it takes more time, um, then it just takes as long as it takes. And sure. maybe that's sure. years and that's okay. Sure. But starting small and doing those things that are inexpensive are easy for people to do. So those are great yeah. tips. And, and I think that what happens is once you've done those things, you kind of don't think about those things anymore. Right. Like right. I don't, think about cookware or plastics in my kitchen ever. Why? Mm -hmm. Because I swapped out my cookware decades ago. I don't really have plastic in my kitchen. I just don't think about it. Right. So it's just, it's like, okay, I'm aware of it being a problem out there, but for me, it's just not, I've checked that box and I don't have to worry about it. So it's not like, you know, in the, in the health coaching and nutrition space, when we're asking people to make like dietary changes. Well, that's hard because you've got taste and preference and food addictions and sugar mm-hmm. cravings and cultural mm-hmm. preferences to deal with. It's not just like, but people aren't like emotionally attached to their Tupperware. 
Right. If you say, okay, look, I want you to ditch that old Tupperware and start using glass containers, they're going to do it and they're going to go, great, cool. I don't have to think about that anymore. It's right, not, right. It's like, a big it's, thing that they can get done yeah, and check no that off their list. Attachment there, so. Right, right. All right. Is there any lasting um, tidbits or factoids that you want to leave with our listeners? Um, everything that you've mentioned so far is so wonderful and so powerful to use. But is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to let them know about? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I would just sort of reiterate what I mm-hmm. was just saying about, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we do it. We do it piecemeal. We do it. We don't have to do it all at once. Mm-hmm. And however long it takes, it takes. Um, the way that I like to say it is we change the things that we can control. So we worry less about the ones that we can't. Um, not to say that we don't do something about those, but we don't we don't worry about them so much. Um, and so we just we do the best that we can. And, you know, if you um, somebody listening is like, oh, my gosh, I don't know where to start. Um, you know, the first thing as you know, I, I don't work directly with consumers. I work with health professionals, but like talk to your health professional mm-hmm. and ask them, um, is this something that you know about? Partly because I want there to be more demand directly to health professionals that their patients or clients um, are are interested in learning more about this and, and being proactive about what you know what they can do to start minimizing exposures. So that actually helps to fuel the the um, continued education of health professionals in this space, which is very lacking. And so, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, if you need help, ask. Um, and uh, yeah. Perfect. Now, where can we find you on social media? Where, what are your handles? Um, I'm uh, on Instagram at environmental toxins nerd. That's the primary social platform that I utilize. And there's mm-hmm. a ton of information over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so come follow me there. And then if um, people are interested in learning more, mm-hmm. um, if there's any health professionals out there that are like, yes, I want to learn mm-hmm. more about this, um, you can go to my website, which is just lauraadler.com. Uh, and uh, check out my courses. Come say hi. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. There's so much information that I think we could go on and on for a certain amount of an extended oh, yes. amount of time, but I appreciate you taking your time and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, you're so welcome. Take care. Thanks for listening to Train, Eat, Repeat. Connect with us on Instagram at fit underscore ferrant or at traineatrepeat.co. Until next time, stay strong, stay healthy.